0: Well, happy 10-year anniversary, Redemption, to all of our family watching online and everyone here in the house. Happy 10 years. Man, we are almost a teenager. (laughs) We'll be able to get our driver's license someday. (laughs) But in honor of our 10-year anniversary, I want to open this morning with an important, significant question. My question is, why so much chips and salsa? Why, when you go to the restaurant, they bring out so much chips and salsa? I used to think that it was because they were being generous, right? Like, and I was in college, you know, I'm like, dude, I'm going to eat you guys out of business. They just keep on bottomless chips. They just keep on bringing them out. But later in life, I learned that, oh, no, it's actually strategic. It's strategic because they know that carbs fill you up. So like, man, if we can load them up on ships and we don't have to give them as much steak and guacamole and they're still going to walk out content, right? Carbs fill you up. Back in the day, uh, my buddy Jason and I, we used to love to go out and eat hamburgers all the time. So we go out and get our hamburgers and our french fries. And Jason would always make fun of me saying, man, Josh, you eat backwards. And I was like, what do you mean I eat backwards? He said, well, you eat your french fries first and then your hamburger after. It's like, dude, that's backwards. You eat your hamburger first, you can savor it and have it slowly and all. And then when you're done, if you've got any left, room left over, you kind of use the French fries to fill her up. And I was like, no, dude, the thing is, I don't eat well and I don't eat much, so by the time I get to the restaurant, I'm hungry. And so I want to like chow down on the fries to kind of fill up first, and then I can slow down and I can savor the burger. So we have this debate, do you savor then fill or fill then savor? Now, Jason and I disagreed, but what we both agreed on was that the fries are the filler, right? Because carbs fill you up. Now, the reality is, we have a love hate relationship with carbs. We love them because they taste so good. Those nachos with all of the melted cheese, that pasta, the mac and cheese, we love them because "Mm, it's delicious, right? right? So we love them, but we hate them, because they not only fill you up, they fill you out. (laughs) Got to loosen that belt at Thanksgiving, and man, that pizza, it's good on the eyes, but not on the thighs. (laughs) So we love them, and we hate them, and we have to count our carbs. We kind of count them to watch how much we're intaking. And if you are on keto, or paleo, or old school Atkins this morning, I have some unfortunate bad news for you. And that is that Jesus makes a 100% all-carb meal. We are in John 6 today. We're going to be looking at a famous story of the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus declares he is the bread of life, and he feeds 5,000 people with this meal that's just loaded with carbs. Now, as the story opens, the people are counting all the people. His disciples are kind of counting all the folks there, and they're going, Jesus, we don't have enough carbs. We count it, right? But by the end of the story, they're counting all the leftovers, and they're going, man, we got more carbs than we need. we got all this stuff. So the title for the message this morning is Counting Carbs. Let's jump into John chapter 6. And a little disclaimer. Someone at the last service told me, uh, hey, you got to let them know that if they didn't eat breakfast, they're going to be starving by lunch because we were talking a lot about food today. <laughs> so let's feast on God's word here. John 6, verse 1. We read, After this... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So John's saying, it's around Passover, Jesus crosses the waters, he goes up the mountain, he sits with his disciples, and then, lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered them, him, 200 denarii, that's about six months' wages, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Well, the first thing we see here is that the disciples look at how to fix an impossible situation, while Jesus wants them to look at who can fix an impossible situation. There is a crowd of 5,000, and Jesus asked the obvious question, where are we going to get bread? Bread. And we are told he does this to test his disciples. He is checking in on them to see how they respond, what they will do. The disciples, like you and I, they immediately jump to how? How much money do we have? Philip goes there immediately. He says, Man, even if we had six years or six months' wages in the bank, this would not be enough to make a dent. Andrew then jumps to how much resource they have, going, how much food do we got? And he takes stock and goes, all we got is this little boy's happy meal, right? They got those five loaves and two fish. It's not enough. It would be like you're at Sun Devil Stadium, and it's packed out, and you're in charge of feeding all these people. And all you got is what's in your lunch pail, your lunch box. The disciples are counting carbs, and they're going, we don't have enough. They're looking at how to fix the situation, but Jesus wants them to look at who can fix an impossible situation. So the reality is they got the bread maker with them. It's like they are in the pantry looking at the ingredients and they're not even paying attention to the chef who's got everything he needs in his back pocket. This is kind of like that show Chopped. Right? You've seen the show Chopped? It's a show where uh they amazing chefs they're really skilled in the culinary arts and they're great at making these amazing meals but uh, they're not given the ingredients they would usually get they get four ingredients and they're usually very strange eclectic ingredients so they might be given like a twinkie and some arugula and some spam and some whipped cream and they got to make some kind of amazing meal out of it and the crazy thing is that they do They are so skilled, they're able to take these wild, unexpected ingredients, and they are able to make uh, a meal out of it. Now, Jesus is like the ultimate chopped chef, right? Because it doesn't matter if you got the right amount of ingredients, the right type of ingredients, Jesus is able to bring forth an amazing meal that can feed his people. You might feel like you don't have the right ingredients this morning. You don't have the right amount or the right type of things you need. You could find yourself saying, God, I want to serve in your kingdom. I want to help you make the meal. I want to actually help feed your people and the world. I want to be a part of what you're doing, but I don't have enough talent. Maybe it's going, man, I can't sing like Susie there in the choir, Daniel this morning playing guitar, right? Like I don't have the right talent. Or you could be saying, man, I don't have the right training. Like I haven't been to seminary yet. I haven't studied the Bible enough. Some of you might be saying, dude, I just don't have time. I'm trying to raise these kids, and they're crazy, and it's just, man, I'm just trying to survive right now. Some of you might be saying, dude, I don't have enough treasure, too, right? Like, I feel broke right now. I'm just trying to make ends meet and get through the month. But the beauty is that even if you find yourself not having the talent or the training or the time or the treasure, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus can do a lot with your little. Jesus can do a lot with our little. Jesus is saying here, like, stop looking at what you have and start looking at who I am. Stop looking at how much you got and start looking at what I can do with it. Jesus is going, man, I can feed Sun Devil Stadium with your Happy Meal. I can make a feast with your four crazy, wacky ingredients, right? Jesus is going, I can feed the world with my people's loaves and fishes, and they bring them to me. Well, Jesus is testing his disciples, we're told here, and this test mirrors a famous story of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Israel being fed by manna in the wilderness. Uh, there's a chart here where John is emphasizing all these details that he wants us to see that kind of echo the Exodus story. So here with Jesus, John tells us it's Passover time, like the Exodus was a Passover, that Jesus crosses the waters with this large crowd following behind him, like Israel following Yahweh through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus comes out of the waters and he goes up the mountain, like Yahweh leading his people to Mount Sinai, where Yahweh met with the leaders of the people at the top of the mountain, like Jesus with his disciples. And the people are organized as a group of 5,000, where, for Israel, they're organized into groups of 50 and hundreds. And there, they're going to be fed by Jesus with bread, similar to how Yahweh fed his people with manna, bread in the wilderness. John wants us to see that there's an echo of that story going on here. So I like to imagine, if you will, that you are a Jewish teenager who's grown up on these stories of the Exodus. And you find yourself here in this story where you're following Jesus and you're following him. You know it's about Passover time and you're following him across the waters and you're following behind him up to this mountain. And then you're looking around there, man, there's like 5,000 of us. And, man, and you're looking like, dude, we got nothing to eat. We got no bread. And you're probably going, whoa, wait a minute, This, this, this rings a bell. This sounds familiar. Jesus is echoing this story as he sets the scene up. And we're told for Israel that this was a test as well. In Deuteronomy 8, we're told the test was to see what was in their heart, whether they would trust or not. And Israel failed the test in the Old Testament because they looked to the how rather than the who. They looked to how much they had and rather than looking at who was with them, the God who went with them. They found themselves grumbling and complaining, we don't have enough, Why don't you just take us back to Egypt, for the security, and so Israel failed the test because they looked at the how rather than the who, and here we find the disciples failed the test as well, in essence, because same thing, they look at the how rather than the who. We don't have enough. Reality is, Israel failed this test, the disciples failed the test, and you and I, we fail this test all the time too. When we hit a hard spot, we're so quick to say, God's abandoned me. When we hit the first sign of trouble, we say, God left the building. This is my question for you this morning, is that when things get tough, is your first flinch to turn to the how or to the who? To how much you have or the God who is with you? I got a new car last week and there's actually kind of a cool story behind it so uh holly my wife she's been bugging me for a while josh you gotta get a new car i'm like ah I, 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 what's wrong with this one so like, dude it's been a multiple accidents it's all banged up so you're driving the kids around in that often and you, you know we need something with more safety features and better condition and uh, the mechanics telling me man it's going to be all this money to repair with stuff's coming up like dude it's more than you you paid for it it's like all right, I right gotta look at a new car so we start looking And the week between Christmas and New Year's, I'm online and searching and trying to find a deal and keeping my eyes open for something. Uh, But no matter how I work the numbers, I'm just like, dude, we don't have enough. Like, we don't have enough bread in the bank, right? (laughs) Like, we're short on money to get what it feels like we need in this season. And so I wait for this whole week, kind of looking at everything, letting myself get to the point of frustration before finally Holly and I go, hey, let's go to the who, right? Let's, Let's go to Jesus. Let's pray about this. And so... We pray, and uh, we do some listening prayer, and I feel like this sense of God going, hey, when, when it's the right car, you're going to know it. Like You'll feel it when it's the right car. And Holly feels a sense of going, um, you're not going to have to go into debt to get it. I'm like, what? That's weird. Okay, so we get done, we pray, and I'm like, hey, let's go, let's go revisit the numbers. Let's pull up the bank account, so we got there. So we pull up the numbers, and ding! There's like 3,000 in there that wasn't there before, right? I'm like, what's that? And it was a stimulus check, right? And... <laughs> Now, hear me now. I'm not saying God organized a trillions of dollar you know, national stimulus package just so that I could get uh, you know, a little help with my, my new car. <laughs> I'm not saying that. But the timing was crazy. We're all week. I'm busting everything, you know, like just trying to figure things out. And it's finally when we move from the who, from the how to the who, that, dang, it's there. And then we're like, okay, I go. I, 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 let's, let's call 911 one time. So I look, I'm like, that's, that's the car. That's the one that seems like the perfect thing. And so I'm like, on my way to these car dealer. my mom calls, checking in, hey, how are things going? And, okay, um, and, yeah, great, I'm going to go get a car. And they're like, finally, Josh is getting a new car. And so my mom calls all these relatives, and without me asking, initiating anything, and suddenly, like, I'm hearing from an aunt I haven't seen since I was six years old, or so somebody's like, hey, I want to throw in $500. We had, like, grandpa and aunt and uncle and all these different people going, hey, we want to pitch in. By the end of the thing, the whole thing was paid for. And... Now, hear me here. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that, name it, claim it, right? I'm not saying that if you just have enough faith that God's going to give you a brand new car. That's not the point here. But the point is that how quick are we to turn to the how rather than the who, right? How quick are we? How, how often is our first flinch to look at how much do I have versus who is the God who is with me? Jesus wants to test us, wants to train us, wants to teach us, wants to grow us up into the kind of people where our first flinch is to turn to the who, is to turn to Christ himself. When you are in the wilderness and hard times hit, do you turn first to your circumstances or to Jesus? Is your first flinch to look at what you have or to who God is? we can so often get fixated on the meal that we can't make with the ingredients that we got rather than the mighty chef who's able to turn our loaves and fishes into phenomenal feasts. Let's continue in the story. Verse 10. We read, Jesus said, So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus provides more than enough for his people. Jesus gives them, we're told, as much as they wanted till they had their fill. So after this miracle, the disciples are counting the carbs and they're going, oh my gosh, we've got 12 baskets left over. They're going, man, we are ending this thing with more than what we started with. We see here that Jesus is not a skimpy, frou-frou restaurant, right? Like, he's not one of those places where you go and throw down 150 bucks on the meal and afterwards you're still left hungry. as all get out. <laughs> when Holly and I started dating, we would go to, uh, you know, I wanted to impress her. And so, you know, I'd save up money. We'd go to like the... Hundred dollar meal or something, but then the, the, the plates would come out and the portions were like that big, and I'm like, really, really to the you know. And then we get done, I'm like, sweetie, we got to drive through Taco Bell because I still need to <laughs> I need to fill up, right? That is not Jesus. This is not skimpy Jesus. He is not skimping out on us. And some of us think that we serve a skimpy God. Right? Like we can approach God, God kind of going like, Hey Dad, Heavenly Father. Is that all right? Can I I get a happy meal? And we think our Heavenly Father's like, man, I'll get you a day-old 59-cent hamburger on some stale bread and you'll be happy, right? (laughs) Like, no, that is not our Heavenly Father. We can think that God's just out to give you the bare minimum. But no, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, which of you, if his son, Ask for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or ask for fish, we'll give him a snake. How much more so, then, will your father who is in heaven love to give you good gifts and to care for you as his children? God is a generous father. And here is the danger if you follow an ungenerous God, you will become an ungenerous person. We grow to image the kind of God that we serve, the gods that we serve. If you follow an ungenerous God, you will likely, over time, begin to think, hey, I'm more righteous if I'm cheap. I'm more holy if I'm frumpy. I'm more spiritual when I suffer. We can become an ungenerous people when we follow an ungenerous God. If you serve a skimpy, stingy, scrungy, scroogey savior, then we will likely become the kind of people who don't tip at restaurants, Right? Like, don't be that. Don't be that crowd at Red Robin that's all got their Bibles open and digging on the bottomless fries and the, the strawberry lemonade drinks, whatever, and, and just laughing at it, having a great time. But then when it's time to go, the server comes up and, man, nothing. It's out on me, right? Like, no, when we follow a generous God, when we follow a Savior who provides more than enough, who is out to and able to meet our deepest hungers and cravings, and ultimately, spiritual and physical, ultimately to satisfy us in Him, when we do that, when you follow this generous God, it makes you a generous person that we can become a people who tip generously, a people who go above and beyond to help and to love and to serve and to share what we have to bless and give to others. You become that person who brings the nice bottle of wine to the party, the celebration, who goes out of your way to go, where and how can I lavish that which God has given me to bless and serve others? Jesus is a generous shepherd who feeds his sheep well. It's interesting, in verse 10 where it says uh, that there was much grass in that place. That's an interesting detail, John. Why, why are you telling them that there was a bunch of grass in that place? Well, many commentators observe that uh, John wants us to see this as an image of Jesus feeding his sheep. He leads the crowd to this place with a lot of lush green grass, and he has them sit down. And that echoes a very famous psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus is a generous shepherd who leads his people and takes care of his people, takes care of us. Jesus wants to feed you, to fill you up, to restore you, physically, but spiritually as well. And I wonder, what would it be like if we looked at prayer and reading scripture? Not so much as like religious hoops that we jump through to try and prove how spiritual we are, but rather as places that we go to get fed by Jesus. As green pastures where we go to meet our deepest hunger with him and his word and his presence. When you don't feast first on Jesus. You're more vulnerable to temptation. You know, they say, uh, don't go shopping hungry. (laughs) Don't go to the grocery store on an empty stomach because you're going to end up buying all sorts of junk food and things you don't need and things you would never in your right mind buy and put in your body. And similarly, when we don't feast first on Jesus, we can end up getting some stuff that is not good for us. When we don't turn to him First, to satisfy our deepest, most significant cravings. We can go to other places. We can seek satisfaction and significance in some dangerous places. When you don't turn to Jesus first for intimacy and affection, it's way easier to get sucked into porn and unhealthy, uncommitted relationships. When you don't turn first to Jesus for your joy becomes way easier to abuse prescription drugs, and even non-prescription drugs, to find yourself on a road to addiction. When you don't go first to Jesus for your sense of stability and bring him your disillusionment at times with the world, it becomes much easier to get sucked into conspiracy theories. And this is one that we need to talk about today, because conspiracy theories are growing not only in our culture at large, but in the church. And so as a shepherd, I feel like it is important that we address and talk about this head-on. And so let me be clear and direct when I say, QAnon is a cult. QAnon is a cult. We are a Reformed church, and Reformed church leaders across the country have investigated and explored and declared, looking into it, that this is a cult. Example, uh, the Gospel Coalition put out an expose earlier this year on the phenomenon and said that Christians should care about QAnon, quote, because it is, quote, it is a satanic movement infiltrating our churches. Now that may sound too extreme. Josh, satanic, really? Like, are you going too extreme here, right? Well, here's what I mean by satanic. Uh, The movement frequently engages in slander, and the Bible calls slander demonic behavior. James 3. The movement often traffics in lies, which Jesus says are associated with Satan. Now you'll hear the claim sometime that, well, it could possibly be true, right? Some of these things, some of these things could be possibly true. Can you know for sure that they're not? And if so, then is it isn't okay. But here's the thing. There's a word in the Bible for strong accusations that have no evidence or proof behind them to back them up. That word is slander. It's not a good one, right? It's not a good thing. And so as, this is, I love Joe Carter uh, writing on this for the Gospel Coalition. He summarizes, as a movement of Satan, QAnon is incompatible with Christianity. Now, as Christians, we believe that what you believe matters. And so if you're getting immersed in this, uh, then you need help, and we're here for you. We would love to meet with you. I just want to ask, if, if, if this is you, if you're someone who's kind of getting sucked into some of this stuff, I just want to ask that you'd be willing to meet with one of us as pastors, We'd be able to sit down, hear your heart, and be able to share ours with you, and, and talk through it, because we care about you, and we want health and help. And there are good people, I know, who... Dabbled and kind of gone a little bit and then seen kind of clearly for what it was and been able to pull, pull out, right? But if you find yourself binging, like YouTube conspiracy videos and all that, like that is like coming home from Costco with nothing but the bulk size Oreos and Doritos and soda, right? Don't swap out Jesus for junk food. Put down the Oreos, put down the Doritos and let's feast on Jesus, And when we feast on Jesus first, we put him first, we are less vulnerable to temptation. All right, well, let's continue, see how the story ends. Verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain. By himself. As the passage goes on, Jesus later says, I am the bread of life. And in verse 27, he says, I want to focus here. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is better bread. Jesus is better bread than the bread that spoils. The food that goes to rot. Jesus sees here that they're going to try and make him king. He's looking out, and there's a crowd of thousands of people, and Jesus looks out going, man, they're going to try and make me king by force. He sees that they're about to go and try and storm the capital in Jerusalem. They're going to try and break the windows of the temple. They want to go in and kind of kick their feet up in the high priest's office, and they want to put Jesus on the throne. They want to put him on the throne by force. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm about. I'm out. I can imagine back that day as well, like Jesus is looking out and they got their own version of crazy shaman dude with the furble horn helmet or whatever and the face being on with the glaze look in his eye. And maybe some of them have like their Yahweh save signs that are trying to use that to legitimate the, the insurrection, the coup. And Jesus says, y'all are crazy. That's not what I'm about. I'm out. And he goes back up the mountain. Jesus doesn't compromise the character of his kingdom for a shot at power. Let me say that one more time. Jesus doesn't compromise the character of his kingdom for a shot at power. In that day, it's helpful to recognize there were many would-be messiahs. There were many insurrections. There were many violent revolutions. And Jesus is saying, that is not how I rule. Later in John 18, Jesus stands before Pilate, and John 18, verse 36, he tells Pilate this, he says, My kingdom is not of this world, for if it were, my followers would fight for me. Jesus is saying his kingdom is for this world, it has come to bring salvation and life, but Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It does not share the nature of this world, the tactics of the world, this world, the principles of this world. It does not use coercion and force and manipulation to try and get its way. And Jesus calls his followers to a different kind of way. Jesus is not about insurrection, Jesus is about resurrection. Amen? Jesus is not about insurrection. He is about resurrection. Jesus doesn't incite allegiance through the force of revolution. Jesus inspires allegiance through the splendor of revelation, revealing the splendor and the glory of who he is. Jesus shares his power with you, but he shares his power with you not by rallying you around a guillotine, but by raising you up from the grave. Jesus comes into power, not through an uprising of men, but through the uplifting of the Father, who has lifted him up and exalted him to the highest place, to the name that is above every name, as King of kings, as Lord of lords, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue and confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is a different kind of leader. So don't trade your freedom for bread. Don't trade the freedom that you've received in Christ for a bread of this world that spoils. There is a famous scene called the Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky's classic novel, The Brothers Karamazov. And in this scene, Jesus stands before this Grand Inquisitor. Jesus has come back, only now it's uh, centuries later, it's more modern times. And this Inquisitor is like a Pilate figure. It's like Jesus before Pilate again, only the Inquisitor represents more modern ideologies. And the Grand Inquisitor, he's interrogating Jesus, questioning him, and he, he says to the effect, hey, Jesus, I know that you've come to bring people freedom. I know that you've come to bring them freedom from sin and slavery and death and these things. But there's a secret that we've figured out, there's a secret that we're on on the inside of. And the secret is this, he says, that the people, they will gladly trade their freedom for bread. They will gladly trade their freedom for the bread of security, of comfort, of power. I believe Jesus is saying here, don't trade your freedom for bread. Don't trade your integrity for a shot at power. Do not compromise your principles in an attempt to get into the inner ring of whatever circles you're in and longing for a seat at the table. Jesus says, do not trade the eternal bread that brings life for this bread that spoils and will rot and waste away. Don't be like Esau. saying <laughs> Don't trade your birthright for a bowl of Chef Boyardee. Like the sugar rush ain't worth it, or the quick hit it'll bring to your belly. Don't trade the bread of life for bread that spoils. Jesus is saying, don't trade Jesus for junk food. We need a healthy diet this year. It's New Year's, beginning of a... A New Year here in January, and I know that many people are considering diet plans, that many of us are looking at, hey, hey, how do I want to approach that this year? Uh, And I want to suggest to you, for us as a church this year, the Bread of Life diet. Now, I know many of the diets out there are low-carb or no-carb and all that, and so, but Jesus, he's countercultural, and he's going to be countercultural here with this diet, too, and going, this is an all-carb diet, Right? This is an all-carb diet feasting on Jesus, the bread of life. i want to call this diet Counting Carbs. Right? So if anyone's with me, we're going to go on this year on the Counting Carbs diet. Only, ironically, this diet is not so much about counting how little carbs you can put in your body. It's actually about counting how many carbs you can. This diet is not about how much little of Jesus can you get away with this year. It's about how much of Jesus can you get into you. How much, Jesus, can you get into you this year? Right? That we want to feast on Jesus. We want to soak into We want to saturate. We want to satiate our lives with the presence and the word and the power of Jesus, our Lord. So how do we do this? How do we feast on Jesus, the bread of life? I want to give you three, three things here. Three ways to feast on Jesus. These maybe kind of obvious, kind of basic But bread is basic, too. So we're kind of back to basics here, right? Back to basics. How do we feast on Jesus? The first one is prayer. Prayer is food for the soul. What bread is for your body, prayer is for your soul. And again, I wonder what it would be like if we looked at prayer less like this religious exercise we're going to do to show how spiritual we are and rather going this is a place that we're going to be fed by jesus that this year we would that you would block out time Uh, maybe it's every morning for a bit or it's times throughout the day maybe you set like a clock on your an alarm on your your clock or your phone or whatever uh, but going time we're going jesus want to carve out time to share my heart with you, to pour my heart out with you and to sit in your presence, to listen if there's anything you have to say for me. I want to come and feast on your presence and bring all of who I am before you, Jesus. Don't starve your soul. It's better to let the body go hungry than your soul. So prayer is one way we want to feast on Jesus. Another is uh, reading Scripture, God's word. Jesus tells us that his words are life. He tells us that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we want to be a people this year who feast on the word of God. That we would carve out time to actually go to God's word and seek to, again, to encounter Jesus there. To let him feed us. To saturate ourselves in the story of God for his world you might find yourself going man i don't have time i don't have time to do that my question would be how much time do you spend doom scrolling (laughs) news right what's going on you can carve out some of that time to go and uh what's the opposite of doom scroll i don't know but something good saturate and receive life from god's word to orient ourselves around a different story that shows us who god is what he's up to in the world and where this whole thing is headed which is ultimately the glory of jesus and his kingdom Okay, so we can feast on Jesus this year with prayer, with Scripture as God's Word, and the third would be community, Christian community, pressing into life, healthy Christian community with other brothers and sisters that can call us forward to life together with Jesus. Uh, Warren and Jim talked earlier about how our new Bible studies are launching this month, so there'd be a great chance to go and check one of those out, and uh, we've got some that are on Zoom mind, some that are in person, you can find out what's the right fit for you. But the goal here is that we'd be pressing in to God's word together and into one another's lives together. They also mentioned the John study guide resource that uh, just came out for the next next month or so. And Dina Rogers, her team have done just a phenomenal job putting that together. That's a way to go deeper in God's word uh, personally. And it lines up with the sermons and the passages that we're going to be in each week. And that's what our RCs and men's and women Bible studies are using. So the goal here is that we would feast on Jesus together, the bread of life, through prayer, through his word, through community. We would press into all this together. Now, the question I want to leave us with this morning is this Are you hungry for Jesus? Are you hungry for Jesus? Essentially, we look around the world and we see the global church blowing up. See People in Africa and China and South America. Some people ask, why is it, man? It seems like the church is blowing up all over the world in amazing ways. Uh, people coming to faith and all, but uh, it seems like in the West, things seem on decline. And I was really struck by uh, one person's observation, which is simply come to believe that God goes where he's wanted. God goes where we're hungry for him. So, my question this morning is, are you hungry for Jesus. I want to grow. Man, I'm I'm hungry for Jesus, man. I'm finding myself in the city going, man, you can have all the other stuff, but give me Jesus. You can have the bread that spoils, but I want the bread of life. You can have that new car, that 2013 Honda Civic LX. (laughs) You can have it, but I want Jesus, God, you can have my eyesight. Some of you know I've been having some eyesight issues this year and all, but like, God, you can have my eyesight, but give me Jesus. The classic song goes, you can can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. Give us Jesus. That's what we need. We need Jesus, the bread of life, this year. So the invitation this morning as we come to communion we come to better bread. We come to Jesus, the better bread. And I know as we pull out this wafer, this may not look like better bread. <laughs> this is about the shoddiest bread I've ever seen in my life. But it is a sign of the better bread. It is a sign of Jesus and the body his body, broken and given like bread for us that we might have life. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, this bread is for you. Let's take it and receive it in his name. And this wine, Jesus gives us not only bread, but he gives us wine. It's a sign of his blood shed for us. Out for us. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, let's receive the wine. Would you join me in prayer?